of Mark all semester long here in RUF, and tonight we're picking up where we left off uh, before break, Mark chapter 4. Um, and you see there at the bottom, if you have questions, uh, text them there, and after announcements, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. So, uh, Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let me pray for us and we'll jump into this. Lord God, uh, we thank you that we can be here together. We thank you for a gorgeous day um, and a little bit of a break that we're coming back from. And we pray that you would meet us tonight. Um, as Alexander was saying before, we're coming from all over the place, place, places of faith and places of doubt and skepticism, of fear and of anxiety, and we pray that you would meet us there where we are tonight, and we pray this in your name, amen. So this story, this storm takes place on the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it's interesting, the Sea of Galilee, give you a little meteorology, uh, this is a little story here, um, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level you believe that? And 30 miles away is uh, a mountain called Mount Hermon. Uh, that is, its peak is 9,200 feet. There's about a 10,000 foot gap in a 30 mile space. And so as you can imagine, um, this low lying massive sea or giant lake that's sitting in the sun all day long and warming up. And then you've got the cool air from the mountain and it's really common for those two things to collide, a cold front and a warm front come together, and they make what's called a lukewarm front. Um, that's not what it's called. It, may, it makes a storm, right? Like, you, don't, you didn't have to go to a meteorological school to know that, that makes a storm. And um, it, they're so common, in fact, that even to this day, uh, parking lots next to the Sea of Galilee have warning signs about being parked there, saying, like, storms can rage up and it'll swamp your car. It can flood your car, so just know like watch the weather. So like if you go to the Sea of Galilee, I recommend uh, Uber. Um, it can be bad. Um, but this, this storm was interesting. It was, it's common where they are, but it's a big one even for this place because the people with Jesus, most of them are fishermen and they fish on this lake. Like they're accustomed to this and yet they are terrified. They're fearing for their lives. They are afraid in the story. It's what the story's about. As they're afraid of the storm, I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What do you fear? What's a storm in your life? What's something that's creating chaos or uncertainty for you? Uh, maybe you're afraid of rejection. Like, I would ask her out, but she might say no. I wish they had an app for that. So I would know ahead of time, so I didn't have to take a risk. Uh, Oh, wait. um, Maybe you're afraid of exposure. I think this is really common. I I saw this amazing speech uh, by Conan O'Brien, of all people. You know who he is? 
late night with Conan? Because he went to Harvard. Do you know that? Conan O'Brien went to Harvard. <laughs> We're all failures. <laughs> you know, like Conan O'Brien. No, but he, he talked about that fear of his entire time at Harvard that he was going to be exposed as a fraud, that people were going to find out that he doesn't actually belong here. And we feel that too here. I hear that from you guys all the time Um, because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid if I can't, what if I can't make it? What if I don't get the grades? What if I don't get into the grad school that I want? What if I don't get the career that I want? What if my plans don't work out? Or you're afraid of being alone, like that you're never really going to have somebody who knows you and accepts you, or maybe you're very afraid of being known. In the first place. Um, Maybe you don't want that. We're afraid we'll be found out. Um, I was reading uh, just last night uh, to my first grader, Elijah, and we were reading this story. Uh, There's a series of little books about this frog character named Froggy. And uh, it's Froggy's first day of first grade. And uh, he wakes up and he's late for the bus and he runs as fast as he can and gets on the bus. And then when he gets on the bus, he realizes he's in his underwear. Uh, this is a frog that wears underwear, and, um, and he hides all through class, and then finally the teacher is yelling at him because he's in his underwear, and then he realizes it's his dad waking him up. He's having a dream. He's having the underwear dream, which we've all had, and Elijah starts laughing, and he says, I had that same dream, and then Benjamin, who's standing nearby, is like, yeah, I had that one too, and I'm like, yeah, I've had that one too, because we all do. Um, one specific example for me, I'm not making this up a few years back. Um, I had a dream that I was at large group, and there were like tons of people I had never met before. There was this huge crowd had come in, and I was like, oh my goodness, there's way more people here. I don't know who they are. And then I walked up to the front for like this part, and then I looked down at my notes, and there were no notes. And so I just picked up a Bible and like opened it to a random verse and read it and started just making things up on the fly, which is what it feels like sometimes. But, um, uh, and then as I'm, as I'm talking, like people just start looking at their watches and they stand up and they all start walking out. And then I woke up. They're all leaving. That was an, ex- that was an exposure dream. It's a stress dream. It's, a, it's uh, the campus minister's version of the underwear dream. Uh, and I had it. And here in Mark, there's this one, and then there's a few stories he tells afterwards in chapter 5 that are all about fear. He layers these stories of fear. Uh, there's a demon-possessed man, and it's a real weird story. We'll look at it later where Jesus drives out the demons, and then the crowds, people, the, the people from the town, they come, the crowd, they're afraid. But they're not just afraid that he did a weird miracle and healed this man. They're afraid of losing their livelihood, that he's disrupting things. There's a woman who's had uh, a condition for years, and she sneaks up to Jesus, and she thinks she touches him secretly. Um, but then he says, you know, who touched me? And he turns and he heals her. But she's afraid of being exposed. She's afraid of the shame that she'll have to bear in their culture because of her disease. And then there's this man named Jairus who has a 12-year-old little girl who's dying. And he comes to Jesus wanting her to be cured. He's afraid that she's going to die. He's afraid of death, of losing this person that he loves. And the disciples here in this story, they're afraid of dying. Because ultimately, all of us, just like the disciples, we're afraid of death. It's the core thing that we're afraid of. And all these other losses, all these other fears, are all kinds of deaths. A German philosopher named Nilke said this. He said, every angst that human beings experience participates 
in the death angst. Germans love to make up words, so death angst is one word. Every, every angst or every fear, every phobia, every existential condition that we experience that's negative, he says, participates in the death <coughs> angst, the fear of death. So I'm afraid of the death of a relationship or the death of my reputation or the death of my comfort, the death of my ability, the death of my sense of self-worth. There are all kinds of death. And we know this. This is why we say stuff like, this class is killing me. It, it appears in our language like, I'm going to die, we say. Um, and the truth is, though the, that exam will probably not kill you, something eventually will. Like, I'm going to be Debbie Downer tonight. Like, we're all going to die. Um, death will come to all of us. And here in the story, this boat is filling up with water. And if something doesn't happen quick, they're going to drown. They're going to die. And that seems like a very, in their story, in that moment, that's a very real and legitimate fear that they're having. It's not a stress dream. It's not a phobia. It's not an exam. Like, they are going to die. And what's so interesting to me about this story is that how did they get themselves into that near-death situation in the first place? Like, what got them there? It's in verse 35. Jesus said... Let's cross the lake. Let's go to the other side at night. Like, 700 feet below sea level, mountains right over there. Jesus led them into the storm on purpose. It was his idea, not theirs. He led them right into it. Quick application. Some of our problems, some of our storms are because of our own foolishness, things that we create. Most of mine are those. But sometimes Jesus brings you into it on his own, even as a result of obeying something he said. Um, that's the deal. And Peter would later write uh, in the book of First Peter, who, Peter, who was in this boat, he says this, Don't be surprised when you face trials and sufferings as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you face trials and sufferings as if something strange were happening. Don't you react when things go wrong like that's strange? Like that's weird? Like this shouldn't be. Not to me. Why would this happen to me? I don't think this way. Because I want things to be easy and nice. And I really think deep down, part of what I actually believe, and what I mean like functionally believing is that if I do things the right way, if I follow the right steps, things will work out. That that's how it's supposed to be. Um, if I'm following God, then I'm not going to go into a storm. And so when things are hard and we do suffer, we, we often tend to think to ourselves, like, I must have done something really wrong for this to be happening to me. Like, what button in the code did I miss? Why is this not working out? And you are probably like me, and like the, um, a lot of the sort of popular preachers on TV that promise, like, if you give money to me, then you'll get, you'll get rich. Or, like, if you have enough faith, you're going to get a big house, or these sort of outlandish, you'll be healed, or whatever the case may be. You're like, that's ridiculous. And yet, functionally, I have this little health and wealth gospel preacher that lives in my heart, <laughs> and that tells me the exact same thing. But what's amazing here is that 
even when we're in the midst of these things, whether it's because we were following God faithfully or because of something I created for myself, part of the point of this passage is that Jesus has you there for a reason. In whatever that is, whatever turmoil you have in your life right now that feels overwhelming and even to the point of crippling fear that a lot of us feel and experience, that Jesus has you in the midst of that on purpose. He leads us into storms. And to be honest, that is incredibly frustrating news. I don't like that. I don't like being afraid. I don't like not having a quick fix. I don't like not having an answer. I don't like ambiguity. I don't like not knowing what's going to happen next. So it makes me want to ask why. Like, why does he do that? Why does Jesus lead us into storms? Doesn't he care? Which is exactly what the disciples ask him in the story. Right? And then look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Little sidebar, that little asleep on the cushion is a little sign of an eyewitness detail. It's this incidental detail that doesn't move the plot forward. It's just kind of thrown in there, which is the mark of an eyewitness telling you a story. It's part of what Mark is trying to claim here through Peter. Let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like Jesus has fallen asleep on you? If you're a Christian. When you need him the most. And that question, don't you care? We're hurting. We're scared. I'm going to die. And you're asleep? And it's really easy to identify with the disciples here. Like, this isn't a crazy statement either. The whole, like, we're going to perish. Like, that's not crazy. And I also would think, you know, in this situation, it's a pretty logical conclusion. Like, sleeping equals not caring, right? Like, that, that's makes sense. If you cared, you wouldn't be letting this happen. If you loved me, you'd keep me safe. But part of what the story is trying to tell us is that that just isn't the case. It's this idea that even when Jesus is sleeping, he's up to something. Even when Jesus seems to be asleep, he's up to something. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Um, Today I was at a a townhouse that Dawn and I and the kids lived in uh, the first 10 years that we were here. We're trying to rent it out right now and I was showing it to a guy who might rent it. Uh, And... It was interesting because we live in this townhouse, so we share a wall. And our next-door neighbors, uh, they've since moved away, but who used to live there, they had a dog uh, named Captain. And uh, he was this British bulldog and boxer mix. And he's just like this huge, like he had like the muscles in his chest, like you could see them, like the way his fur was. He's this barrel-chested, happy-go-lucky monster. And um, (laughs) he would... He would go out, you know, they'd let him out. And sometimes our kids would be in the back. We shared a backyard and backed up to woods. And uh, he just loved, like, chasing my kids, <laughs> you know, because he's this big, happy-go-lucky dog. And he wasn't going to hurt them at all. He's just this goober. Uh, and, but he would chase them around, and they'd freak out. And uh, Will, my next-door neighbor, he could step out on the porch. And it didn't matter if Captain was, like, out in the woods or, like, just about to pounce on one of my kids. He would just go, Captain. And Captain would stop and turn and run right back inside. 
He was so well-trained. It was this amazing thing. I loved it when he would scare our kids. It was so funny. Benjamin, <laughs> remember when Benjamin was five, he'd come running, he came running in. And he was like, Mom, there was this captain dog named Captain. And he, you know, and he, was, he was just so out of breath and just overwhelmed. And it was like invigorating but terrifying at the same time. But it was so cool. Like Will could just say, Captain, and he would come. And it's amazing that Jesus in his story talks to a hurricane the way Will talks to his dog. He rebukes, it says, he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace, be still. And that language, it, again, fits like when you're telling a dog to hush. He's saying, cut it out. Stop. And then this other thing where it says that there was a great calm. That's a nautical term. Again, a lot of these present eyewitnesses were fishermen. They were used to boats and being on the sea and this idea of Great calm. It doesn't just mean, you know, today was like a, a beautiful day, right? It's this sense of when you're out on the water and there's just no waves. You ever been at a lake in the morning and you can see the reflection of the trees? It's this sense of like, it goes from a raging storm to glass. It's incredible. This sudden, utter peace and stillness, and you can almost picture them kind of like the boat is still rocking, but the water's not moving, and they're just like, what? Uh, what's going on? An early church father named Jerome said this, creation recognized its creator. Creation recognized its creator, or a thing I love to read to my kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you've heard of it, uh, it's amazing. The author of that writes this, She writes, The wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course, in the very beginning, when he had spoken them into being. They recognized his voice from when he had spoken them into being. Jesus, through this storm, is showing the disciples something about himself. And what it means to trust him. Uh, Listen to these passages from the Psalms. This is from Psalm 29. It says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And Psalm 65 says this, The Lord who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. And the disciples are in awe of his voice stilling the roaring seas. And then Psalm 107. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet and that he brought them into their desired haven. Jesus is reenacting these psalms right there in front of these disciples. Which is why he says to them, why are you so afraid? What he's saying to them is, have you not yet figured out who I am? We'll come back to that in a second. But first notice, like he doesn't say... You know, that was pretty scary. And I might have pushed you guys a little too far this time. You know, like, is everybody okay? 
Can I fix you a snack? Like, what's, what, what's going on? Like, that's, that's what I would do. But he's actually, he's correcting them. He's rebuking them for being afraid. Uh, Frederick Bruner puts it like this. He says, there is something moral about faith. It is often a form of courage and its absence, cowardice. We learn here that faith is not simply the passive acceptance of truths, a weak resignation that just believes. Faith is often depicted in the Gospels as a courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. Faith is a courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. Now, don't misunderstand me or what this commentator is saying or what Mark is saying. He's not saying that faith is like a work, that we can somehow like merit God's favor by just having good enough faith. Um, but he is saying that there's this activeness to it. There's this call to it, that the absence of it is cowardice. That we are given a command to believe. And Jesus is saying, don't doubt my love. Don't you even care? And he's saying, don't, don't doubt my word. Like I told you guys in verse 35, that's what we're going to the other side of the lake. Like, that's what we're going to do. Why are you afraid? Don't you know who's in the boat? Have faith and not fear. And this is the part where for a lot of us, like in that door walks guilt. If you're a Christian. There's this, and this is where I can really turn it on you. Like, your pathetic little faith. <laughs> And all your anxieties and your fears and you're all worried about your midterms and your girlfriend and you are pathetic and cowards, right? Quit worrying, just believe. What's wrong with you? If you would just believe better, things would be fine, right? But still notice the emphasis, even in what Bruner had to say. He says, the courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion, that Jesus is equal to the occasion. That's what, Je- that's what Jesus is getting at. Do you still not have faith? Do you not know that I'm up for this? That I can handle this? I've healed people. I've forgiven sins. I'm teaching with authority. Have you forgotten who you're dealing with? Do you still not understand who I am? Do you believe that Jesus is equal to your occasion? To use Bruner's words. Does he have the power to say, peace be still to you and for you? And look at verse 41. I love this. And they were filled with great fear. Why are you so afraid? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love that. They were filled with great fear. It literally says they feared great fear. They were fearing great fear. And they're saying, who is this? They're more afraid after the storm than during it. Why? Because they're getting a glimpse of who Jesus is. I think they're figuring this out. Maybe those psalms are echoing around in their heads. And they're not just just who is this, but what is this? Uh, have you ever been out at night and it's pitch dark and then there's a bolt of lightning and suddenly like you can see like the whole field that you're in for a split second and then it's gone? 
And it's almost like that. There's this moment where they just get this flash of who Jesus is. And they are mortified. And just think about that. If just a little glimpse, just a little taste of that would undo these disciples who've been walking with him and learning from him and seeing him do other miracles and say these outlandish things about himself, if that shocks them, what would his full revelation do to us? If we really saw him for all that he is. And so it goes from this eeriness like an episode of Lost. Like, like the, the credits are supposed to, they fear great fear. You know, like the screen goes black. Bruner says this about faith. Faith, the way Jesus wants us to relate to him, as important as that is, is not the theme of this story. Jesus' salvation of even weak in faith disciples is. The point is, even when our faith is excessively fearful, Jesus hears our cry, gets up, rebukes the wind and the sea, and creates calm. Jesus helps us however we come to him. Just come. And I love pointing this out. When he says, just come, he gives an exclamation point. Um, I read a lot of Bible commentaries they're not fast and loose with the exclamation points. It really stands out. It's not a thing. But this writer, Frederick Bruner, is so like, captivated by this story that he has to just use that, that little point for what we're supposed to use it for instead of like seven of them at the end of every text like I always do to you guys. Come to RUF tonight! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Just one. Just come. Jesus helps us however we come to him. Just come. This passage is not first and, foremost about, uh, first and foremost about faith. It's about what our faith is in. About Jesus being equal to the occasion. The magic of faith is not the strength of our faith. The magic of faith is the thing that the faith is in. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the thing that your faith is in. You can believe with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that that chair is going to hold you up. But if it has broken legs, you will fall on your butt. But you can be doubting and uncertain. But if you sit in it and it's a good chair, it will hold you. And that is what our faith in Christ is like. But can we trust him? Like, can we trust him? Is it true that we don't need to fear? What about our storms? And when they come, and they will come. Because, like, we don't even get to see him sleeping on a cushion. We live in 2017, and we're reading an old book. Like, how do we... How do we know? Where's our peace be still? Uh, when I was first studying this passage uh, in any amount of depth, I kept noticing other people who were writing about it, and they were talking about the parallels between this story and the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with that story, I recommend tonight. Read it. It's like three pages long. Find a friend and, and read through it together. But they kept pointing out these parallels between Jesus and Jonah, and at first I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting little twist. Um, and then I began to realize like more and more, like, no, I think these guys are onto something. This is kind of a big deal. I think this is a big deal. Why is it significant? Well, first let me point out some of the parallels. So Jonah is in a boat, and he's going trying to avoid the call that God has given him, whereas Jesus is going straight into it. He's going across to preach the word to other people. Jonah is endangering his passengers by being present on the boat, whereas Jesus is keeping them safe. 
Jonah is totally powerless when the storm comes, and he has to submit to it, but Jesus causes the storm to submit to him. They both were asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. And Jonah, after the storm has gone away, the other sailors on the boat, they fear the Lord and they worship. Um, Jesus, afterwards, the sailors are more scared than they were during the storm. And they begin to question if he's the one they should worship. And then the other big difference in the story, of course, is that Jonah, if you know the story, is thrown into the ocean and is swallowed by the great fish for three days, whereas Jesus stays dry on the boat. Why? Why isn't Jesus tossed in? Um, Because his three days are going to come later. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. He calls it the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth in his tomb. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus is not flung into the sea, but he's flung onto the cross. And he's not three days in the fish, but he's three days in his tomb. And he's not vomited on shore in shame like Jonah was. But he's resurrected in glory. Don't you care that we are perishing? They say to him, there's this huge irony there. Don't you care that we are perishing? Disciples, you have no idea what perishing is, and I'm going to show you what it looks like on the cross. Don't you care? You have no idea how much I care. That's why I came. I will perish so that you won't, and I'll rise so that you'll live. And here's the interesting thing to me as I sort of think down the line. Um, So those disciples lived that day. They didn't die. But they're all dead now. (laughs) Like, they all still died. Their storms did come, and they... uh, aren't with us today, and some of them died horrifically. Peter, we're told, was crucified upside down on an upside down cross, and that's how he died. They're so afraid in this story, and yet so courageous later. Why? Because they saw the sign of Jonah. They saw Jesus crucified for them, and they saw him risen again, and that changed them. And that was their ultimate peace be still. And that's the one that you and I have too. Like we still have the resurrection of Jesus. We don't get to see him sleeping on the boat and then coming and doing a miracle before our eyes. But he has done the greatest miracle of all in rising from the dead. And the storms will howl and death will come and we are scared. But Jesus is equal to the occasion and he has proven that to us. So as Jesus would say to Jairus, who's afraid his daughter will die. And then he learns that she's already dead. And Jesus turns to him and he says, do not be afraid, but believe. Do not be afraid, but believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are good, that you are up for whatever our lives throw at us and whatever we throw at you. And we've thrown quite a lot at you. We thank you that you are up for it, that you are worth it, that you are trustworthy, and that you meet us in the midst of our fears and our doubts and our anxieties and our storms. We pray that you would do that for us even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand up and we'll sing some more.